Crime Curious is a true crime podcast that takes an in-depth look into real cases. The content may be triggering or inappropriate for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Crime Curious. I'm your host, Sharnell. I just want to say thank you so much to the outpouring of love that I've had. Our listener from Australia, Jason, I mean, we have more than one, but Jason is absolutely one of our favorite, all, most favorite Australian listeners. He sent us a real kangaroo scrotum sack. It is the most beautiful scrotum sack I've ever seen in my life. It's soft. I'm going to just rub it on my face. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. It's, it is the, one of the softest things that I've ever felt. I think they've made it into leather, some sort of leather ball scrotum material. I don't know, but it is amazing. And I need crystals. I need crystals to put in here. So you guys, give me your input. What type of crystals should I have in my kangaroo scrotum that I could shake at the beginning of each episode for good luck? Yeah, good luck. So yeah, let me know. Reach out. And Jason, thank you so much. One of my most favorite gifts that I've ever been given, for sure. All right, on to a very long episode. This is going to have to be a two-parter, as I will need to take a break to like go pee and whatnot. This was, uh, I think, roughly 35 pages of uh, research here, but it deserves every moment of hard work that I put into it because... This case, I'm just going to tell you guys right now, when we go through it, you will think that you're listening to a fictional story. When I was reading it, there were parts of me that had to then Google, like, is this legitimate? Because it's one of those cases that's very, very unbelievable, but it's 100%, unfortunately, something that one man had to survive. It is a survivor uh, tale, and he went on to write a book. This book is amazing absolutely phenomenal. I highly recommend if you're into audiobooks, listen to the audiobook, you guys. The narrator does such an amazing job at changing voices for characters and making the villains and the sinister voice go along with it together. You seriously feel like you are a part of the story and and just can really understand what this child, what this man, he's a man now, uh, went through. But he wrote this book himself, and he is a very, very gifted writer for sure. So the book is called The Boy in the Cellar by Stephen Smith. And get it, read it or listen to it. I I actually, I love reading books, but my schedule, I usually have to listen to them um, in order to do my research and get all my other things done. But I tell you what, this is the the best audiobook that I have ever listened to in my life. Um, not only because it's a compelling story, but also because of the way the narrator brings the story to you. So there's that. Let's jump in here. Grab yourself all your comfort items, whatever they may be. Get your be- ladies, get your best support bra on because you're going to need it for this wild, wild ride. This case takes place in Sherwood of Nottingham in England, which sounds extremely like, oh, what's the guy's name? Robin Hood? Yeah, 
it sounds very Robin Hood, but I'm sure it's just a regular place. But here in America, it, it sounds fancy and majestic. Now, we know that the victim in this case was born in the 60s. I don't really even know if he actually knows his legitimate birthday or if his parents really even cared to document it. That'll um, all be more clear here in a moment. But the majority of the case takes place in the 70s. So when I'm going through some of the stuff that this boy went through, keep in mind the times because that is tragically a a major reason, I think, why all of this stuff was even able to happen to him. And I need to give a trigger alert right away. Episode one is going to be, or is going to have some um, recollections of very severe physical and emotional abuse of a child. So if that is triggering for you or harmful for you in any way, I mean, it's harmful for all of us, really, but if it's something that you experienced in your own life uh, personally, and it's too hard for you, totally understand, just skip to the next episode. So let's get started here. Um, The book opens with a description of a spider named Peter, and Peter is walking across a small boy's bruised and scarred body, and the boy is not afraid of Peter. And as a matter of fact, Peter has 14 other spider people, not people, <laughs> spider friends that are also the boy's best friend, but Peter is his favorite. And I started this case the same way that I started the book because I think that it shows if you can picture a little spider crawling across a boy's bruised and battered body, and he's talking very gingerly to the spider saying, good morning, there you are. You understand the loneliness. Um, just right away, you're just gripped with how lonely this child must be. The boy is Stephen Smith and the author, author of the book that I mentioned. Stephen has only ever known life in the cellar of his parents' home. And if you're not familiar with a cellar here in America, we would call it a basement. And I don't mean that that's where his bedroom is located. I mean that he is imprisoned there and never let out. So let me describe the cellar for you. There, The cellar doors are in the floor. And so they open up. So for my visual people, they open up from the floor. Um, the door does from the floor. And then there is a set of 10 steps that leads to this very small area um, that is the child's room. It, it's, it, it's a cellar. It's cold. It's damp. The walls are concrete. The floor is concrete. It's moldy and musty. And it never gets the sun. Um, the only natural light that comes in, because there are no windows, come in through what is described as a coal hole um, that is in the ceiling of the um, room, shall we call it? And this coal hole is located directly above Stephen's bed. Now his bed is just this thin little mattress. It doesn't have sheets on it or anything like that. It's just a thin little mattress that's up on um, like brick paver, brick cylinder type um It's very hard. He has one small blanket. He has a table, very small table with one chair. Um, He has a bucket in the corner to do his grumpies in. And he has a toothbrush 
toothpaste in a small jug so that he can rinse his mouth out after jug of water after brushing his teeth. So that is where this case takes place. Now, Stephen has never felt the sun on his skin. He has only, I mean, his only thought is that all children live this way because this is all that he's ever known. He's never been exposed to anything else. I don't mean that this is a child that just gets locked in this cellar when he's naughty. I mean, he's never been let out that he can remember. And he has some pretty early childhood memories. Um, it Probably his first memories were created as he's writing this book around five years old or so. So he's only ever known the seller, thinks that all children live this way and that this is what life is. And he's told over and over again that he's naughty. He's just repeatedly naughty, but he doesn't know what he ever did to deserve this and, and what naughty is. What, is. what is he doing that's naughty? So let's talk a little bit about his father. Now, his father's name is Albert. And one of the spiders, as a matter of fact, that Stephen has in his, his 14 or his 15, his group of 15 spiders that he named, one of them is named Albert. Now, that's the asshole spider. That's the spider that likes to bully the other spiders, that jumps out at the other spiders, and also jumps out at Stephen himself and startles him. So that spider's name is Albert. And it also happens to be his father's name. We're going to call him Albert Fionface because I looked up what anus translated into French meant, and that word is Fion. But then I had to share this with you because since I was scarred by it, I feel like you guys all need to be too. When I went on to reversocontext.com and I typed in what anus meant in French, it told me Fion. But then it also gave me a statement as if it was going to clear everything up. And that statement was, quote, Then, after lubricating her small anus with saliva, our Santa Claus burglar thrust his cock inside. End quote. How? How did we get here? I was innocently looking up the translation of the English word anus to the French word anus got fion and then ended up with a kinky Santa story. A, a burglaring Santa story. Why is he burglaring her anus? I don't know. But there we are. So I just felt like this is what I do for you guys to figure out words. And I have no idea how I ended up there. But there it is. Don't ever look it up. Now you know Fion is, is the word for anus in French. And that's what we're going to call Albert today. He is Albert Fionface. Now his daily routine was that he would bring Stephen a very small bowl of cereal in the morning before work. Now Stephen doesn't know what work means. He's just heard his dad say that he's bringing him his breakfast before work. And whatever that work was, and I still don't really know, is that he was wearing like a nicer type of shirt and then a leather apron over that, okay, with long pants. So he would drop his breakfast off and he would give Stephen daily work to complete, like sentences to write, maths to complete, different problem-solving things, puzzles, things like that. And they that was his schoolwork. That was Stephen's job 
um, essentially between meals because then when his father got home, he would come downstairs, he would grade his work, and as long as he got everything correct, then he would get his dinner. If he didn't, and this is trigger alert, he would get the belt, he would get punched, he would get kicked, whatever mood, feel, and face was in that day is basically how it went for Stephen in the evening, um, regardless of, of his schoolwork. I really venture to take a guess and say that there were probably times where Stephen didn't get anything wrong on his schoolwork, but just got the shit beat out of him because his dad felt like it. Um, one of the ways that Stephen learned was that he would have to ob- observe to learn new things, okay, because he was far too afraid to ask any questions and ask what things meant. He had to use the information that was given him, given to him and make inferences about it and connect, connect to the world around him. So one time, um, his father had like come down and dropped the dish. Now, he dropped it out of his own gorilla hand. Stephen was nowhere around, but his dad said, look at what you made me do, you little bastard. I broke the dish. So that's how Stephen figured out that the name for what his food comes in is a dish. Now, one day he tells a story in the book about how he was given sour milk with his cereal, but forced to eat it anyway. And he did try to tell his dad that it tasted bad. The milk literally had started to curdle, but his dad shoved the dish really hard into his cheekbone and force fed it down his throat and would not allow him water. When he reached for his water jug to try to help um, take it down, his dad kicked it out of his way, wouldn't let him have it. He knew that that milk was sour, didn't matter. He wanted to watch him gag and choke and, and force fed it um, down his mouth anyway. And that's what happened a lot with his food, you guys. It was leftovers. It was moldy food. It was never enough food for a a growing boy, definitely. Now, at this point in time, y'all might be like, but Sharnel, what about a mama? Where the mama? Well, his mother did live in the home, I am sorry to tell you. I would rather tell you that she had no idea and that she was just someplace else and didn't want anything to do with Fionn face. But unfortunately, that's not the case here. His mom did live upstairs, and she would occasionally, very occasionally, bring him things. Like sometimes she would bring different clothes if he grew out of the clothes that he was wearing, and we'll get to the clothes in just a minute. Um, other times he, she would bring him meals. Um, but the thing is, is that she never spoke a single word to him. Not one word. As a mother, I cannot fathom this, but I would venture to guess and say that she was probably a battered woman. She probably was instructed by feeling face himself not to ever speak a word to him okay so we don't know that story we don't ever end up actually knowing her story um you know we can sit here as as a a mom in the the 2000s and beyond obviously I can say you know fuck that guy I wouldn't ever agree to that but this was a different time 
And the only thing that we ever really find out, Stephen never really knows why he was treated this way. Okay. And he never really finds out. There's some guesses that we can take. And one of which I think really holds, holds some weight here. When you think about the times was that Stephen was born originally out of wedlock. And so to me, this was a, a strong religious family. And so there is theory here that since he was the child born out of wedlock, that he was the one that was subject to the abuse, the shame, whatever it may be. They maybe were trying to hide him from the rest of the world because they felt shameful for, for having him out of wedlock, which is disgusting and wrong. But most of the cases that we cover, well, all of the cases really that we cover, have people doing fucked up shit that is distasteful and wrong. So this is no exception. Um, there was another story that Stephen remembered from his childhood about one day it rained down through that coal hole. It had rained really heavily and it had wet, you know, it made his bed wet. Cause as I said, it, the coal hole was above his bed. So of course, Fionn face comes down, sees the wet spot and accuses him of pissing the bed. Now he did, Stephen did try to stick up for himself, even though he rarely spoke to his father. He did try to say, no, I did not. That was the rain. His father was all pissed off. He sits down to grade his spellings that day and just starts using a red pen to make marks. Now, Stephen knew at this point in time, he's really in for it, you know. Suddenly, his father stands up. The little chair flies backwards. He reaches for him instinctively, and Stephen jumps away. I mean, you know, of course, it's natural reaction. Someone's grabbing for you. Of course, you're going to jump away. Well, this enraged his father, and he said, quote, when I get a hold of you, I will kill you, end quote. Stephen started darting around the room to avoid the beast, and the solution for, from his father's perspective of how he was going to get Stephen and teach him a lesson was found in the front of that apron that I told you about that he wears, that leather apron. He pulls out a pair of scissors now, Stephen later finds out that these scissors are the type of scissors that a tailor would use. So I do wonder if that's how he made a living. We don't really know. But he always had that brown apron on and had these very, very sharp scissors in them. Well, what he decides to do in that moment is throw those scissors across the room, you guys. And when he did, the scissors opened up and they were topsy-turbying going end by end across the room instinctively Stephen puts his hands up in front of his face and those scissors slide right through his left hand now he was screaming actually I don't know if it's his left or right hand now that I think about it I thought it was his left hand but later he says he has a hard time holding a pencil so it might be his right hand either way sorry if I get that nuance just a little bit wrong but it went through one of his hands all the way through it okay he was screaming. He almost passed out from the pain. And his dad is yelling, look what you made me do, you little bastard. Why can't you behave? Yes, yes, Fionn face. This is his fault for not allowing you to grab him to beat the shit out of him. So instead you do what any reasonable human being would do and throw fucking scissors at him? Ah, 
I, can't, I, I struggle, I struggle with cases like this and with such serious abusers and perpetrators like this. So then he walks over to Stephen and he just yanks those scissors out suddenly. Stephen recalled that he could hear metal grind against bone as he did this and his stomach lurched like he was going to vomit. I don't know how this kid didn't pass out. I'm reading it and then not reading it, hearing it in the audiobook was enough to make me feel sick to my stomach, as I'm sure some of you are feeling right now as you're listening to this. So after he pulls them out, now keep in mind at this point in time, judging by what happens later and we find out his age, I'm guessing Stephen is about, he's no more than five or six at this point in time when this is happening to him. His dad does not say a single word to him at all just walks his happy ass up those stairs and then comes back down with white bandages and tells him, quote, if you hadn't have pissed the bed, I wouldn't have had to do this. Yes, thank you. That's very reasonable. Thank you. Pissing the bed that I didn't piss because it was actually the fucking coal hole always equals stabbing in the hand. So anyway, he learns, Stephen actually learned something from this though because He's, he um, put bandages around it, and that's how he learned what bandages were and what the name for them were. So uh, Feel and Face brings cream to rub on um, his wound over the next several weeks, and one time he was examining it and says almost proudly, like, this is a good thing. It was a clean cut. Uh, great. Thanks for that. It was a clean cut. It shouldn't have been a cut at all, you fucking asshole. So... Stephen remembered that, like, in hindsight, like, I can't even believe he said that. <laughs> yeah, it was a clean cut. Cool. So he still has a scar to this day on both sides of his hand. And this is why I think it might have been his right hand, because he said that if he holds a pencil too long, um, it his hand will ache from it. So anyway, but at the same token... I don't know, because he also made mention that he could still do his studies. So I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure there, guys. But the point is, his hand got hurt. And from that point on, Stephen would keep a very close eye on that apron. Rightfully so. Okay. After his hand heals and, and some time passes now, in this case, time is funny. You know, this is a child's memories um, that the book is being written from. So we don't have exact timelines. We can only go by what certain stages happens in certain stages of his life that we find information out. So around the age of six or so, he starts being told by his dad that it is his time to learn how to slap out. Now, slapping out up until this point, that bucket that I told you he did all of his grumpies in, uh, his dad would come down and would take it up every mm, three, four, five days, however long it took the bucket to get like three quarters of the way full. Um, and then he would he would take it somewhere. Stephen didn't know where he took it. He would just bring it back down empty. So now his dad tells him he's old enough to slap out and tells him to grab the bucket and follow him. Now, Stephen has never been up those stairs before. He's never climbed stairs because at the top of the stairs is the door. There's He's never allowed out. There's no reason for him to go up there. So here he is, just this little tiny baby boy, carrying this bucket full of his grumpies, and he is terrified that he's going to spill them because he knows if he spills them, literal shit will hit the fan and he's going to get his ass beat. So 
he's nervous about that. But at the same token, this is the first time that he's been through these doors. The very first time. So his brain is taking in all the sights, all the smells, all the sounds. And what he notices immediately after going through the doors in the floor and gets out is that it smells wonderful because he's right by the kitchen. And he doesn't know that it's called a kitchen, of course, but he can smell all the lovely food. And this child is starving. But, of course, his dad does not let him linger at all. He's telling him, come on, follow me. They go out the back door, and if you can picture this, there's a cement patio. They have to walk across the cement patio, and then there is this small building, this very, very small building. Well, it turns out it's an outhouse, okay? It's an outdoor toilet, and his job is to take that slop, that bucket, dump it into the toilet, and flush it. Well, as they're walking across the cement patio, he sees birds just dive bombing him. Now, Stephen doesn't know that they're birds, you guys. He's never seen this. First of all, it's bright as fuck out there because the sun is shining. He's never felt the sun on his skin, let alone has the sun ever touched his eyeballs. It's very, very dark in his cellar. So imagine all of the sensory overload that's happening for this poor child right now. His eyes are trying to adjust to the daylight and his mind is trying to make sense of the world around him. And all of a sudden, these starlings are swooping down. And to him, he describes them, they looked like monsters with witch faces, which if you don't know what birds are and they're swooping at you, absolutely. I know what a bat is, but I can tell you when it gets within five feet of my head in the the dusk of night, I'm screaming like a little schoolgirl and tucking my tail and running inside because I am not a hero. So I can imagine for this poor child, this was terrifying. Well, he drops the bucket. Thank the Lord it does not spill. But his dad heard him drop it, turns around, literally starts laughing at him and saying, damn birds. So at this point in time, Stephen's like, a new word, birds. That's what they are. Then he tells him, he explains to him how to slop out, so how to dump the bucket into the toilet and flush, you know, pull the chain to flush the toilet. Of course, the sound of that in itself was was scary for him and he's like mesmerized by this whole process like there is a place that you can do your business and it just automatically goes away instead of sitting there where you have to smell it and see it for days on end and at that moment his dad tells him that he's too soft and he needs to toughen up and with that he shuts that outhouse door and he locks it so now Stephen is locked into an outdoor toilet a very small much smaller than the cellar that he's used to being in and he has a little peak hole there's some you know the it's made of wood there's like slats in the wood and he can see um you know through some of those slats so he takes that opportunity to just step up on the toilet and watch the world go by he saw trees for the first time course he didn't know that they were trees so to him he thought they looked like broccoli he saw a clothesline with clothes hanging on it and he notices that there are smaller children's clothes clothes on that line clothes that are not his that he's never seen before he sees all kinds of things and he hears things well he ends up being locked overnight and he knows that because of the daylight you know it got dark 
Um, in the darkness, he was scared in there. There were mice. He didn't know what mice were. They're squeaking. They looked like little creatures. Keep in mind, the only other living thing besides his father, besides his father that he has seen, are his spider friends. And he's read about other things in his sentences, but he's not seen pictures of them. So he doesn't know what they are. You know, he may read, Peter took his dog for a walk. But he doesn't know what a dog is. And by the way, it was his sentences of how he learned other names to be able to name his little spider friends, too. So after the first lock-in, he was returned, thrown back into the cellar, and he told Peter, his favorite spider, his best friend, all about the wonderful smells from the kitchen and the different color tiles that he saw in the kitchen and he told Peter if he ever gets gets the chance, he's going to steal some of that food and bring it to him. So this poor kid is just hungry all the time. He's very small for his age because he's being neglected so terribly. And after being locked in the cell or the toilet overnight, he had a bunch of maths that he needed to do and he was behind in. So he rushed through them. Well, that night he got some of them wrong. Now, as his punishment, he recalled that the hot tea that um, Fionn Face had brought down for him uh, was poured all over him, okay? He got beat, and he got the tea poured all over him for getting some of his maths wrong. And he remembered that night trying to go to sleep. He couldn't because it was so painful for him, and he rubbed his hands over where the tea had um, left all the burns, and he remembers feeling bumps what we what he now knows are bad burn blisters something that i have not mentioned yet is that stephen hears a voice in his head asking questions in the third person and later in part two we will get to that as well but as he is he thinks of course that everybody thinks like that and so when he sees the upstairs and he sees all the room that there really is in the world. That voice is asking him, why do they keep you here when there is plenty of room for you upstairs? This is really the first time when he starts realizing that things like this might not be normal for all children. And now that he's been upstairs briefly, he has a better understanding of where voices that he has always heard um, from upstairs, where they're coming from. And he realizes that there are other children living upstairs. He saw their clothes on the clothesline. He hears their voices. Now, he recalled that he never heard laughter and giggling, but he did hear them talking and he heard some crying from time to time. So as he's putting it together that these other children not only are they allowed to live upstairs, but they have clean clothing and better clothing. He's only allowed to wear a very tight shorts jumper, um, dirty a dirty shirt, and he had some socks. The shoes that he did have were some of his father's old work shoes that had never fit him. And he, as I mentioned before, he has that one blanket. It's always cold and always damp in that cellar. So to only wear shorts all the time is another form of abuse all in its itself it's it's neglect but he's doing it intentionally so that this child is cold 
I also think that he's doing it intentionally because he, the way that he liked to take the belt to him, it would do maximum damage if the child was always wearing shorts and could touch exposed skin. Okay, that's those are my theories as to why he was always kept in shorts and never allowed any pants. Um, so after he's kind of putting this all together, and I will say once in a while his father would carry a small basin tub down with water. Now Stephen says the water wasn't freezing, but it wasn't warm bath water either. And he'd be given a bar of soap and told to wash up. And then his dad would carry the water, the, the basin, back up the stairs. It seems to me like the, the keeping this kid in hiding and abusing him like this has to be so much more work than if you just allowed him upstairs. To carry a tub downstairs and fill it with water and do all of this, it, I just it just goes to show how far and how much his dad really enjoyed this entire thing. So um, one night he recalled after kind of putting things together after he'd been outside, he says he just got up the courage and said, you know, when will I be allowed to come out? Why, why do I live down here? When can I come out? His dad loses his ever loving mind, punches him in the face for asking and telling him that he can never leave. This is his home. He should be grateful for it. And of course, he wasn't allowed dinner that night for asking such a horrible question. So a few nights after this, Stephen remembers getting a math question wrong, and his father went absolutely mad with those scissors again. He is slashing through the air with them. Now, they get into a bit of a, a wrestling tussle, and in defense, Stephen grabbed the end of the scissor blade, trying to tug them and pull them away from his father. Well, I think that Albert Fionface knew as soon as he ripped those, I mean, he's much stronger, he's a grown man, but as soon as he ripped those scissors away that they were going to cut um, Stephen's hands, and that's exactly what they did. They're in this tug of war, he yanks them out of Stephen's hands, they slice through both of his hands, and there is blood everywhere. His dad is screaming, look what you made me do. Now, Stephen knew this one was bad, bad, bad. The pain was burning intense. He's screaming. He's holding both hands. He did not want to look at them because he knew this was even worse than the time that the scissors got got, uh, thrown through his hand. And he was right because the pinky finger on one of his hands was nearly sliced all the way off. Now, his father's solution to this was to wrap it tightly with bandages and leave him alone to suffer by himself. This pain was was like any other than uh, Stephen had experienced at that point in time. And he recalled in the book that although the scissors were only used occasionally as a means for abuse, it was the scissors that he feared the most. You know, the belt whippings and the welts and the, his skin breaking open from the abuse of the belt and whatnot, those, I, I hate to say that he almost became acclimated and numb to them, but he did. But the cut of the scissors was an entirely different, intense form of pain for him. And so this created a very strong, intense fear for him. And, and his 
the belt he knew was usually, it was like across his buttocks, the back of his legs, and his back. Whereas, you know, the scissors always were harming his hands, and then he would have to still do all of his studies with them. So it was day by day more painful for him to deal with. Now, Stephen remembers trying to teach himself how to defend himself, and one way was that he practiced like this sort of dance thing that he did around to try and evade the belt movement. So as the belt is slashing through the air, he's trying to jump to the right. As it's slashing through the air, he'd then jump to the left and just do what he could to try and save himself from the pain of the belt. Well, One night when he was doing this, it, of course, only made his father more upset. It intensified his anger. And so finally, his dad just grabs him up by the arm and flings him, okay? This resulted in Stephen's first broken bone, a broken shoulder. Stephen ran around the room screaming, my arm, my arm. It was hanging in a really funny way and looked like it had been put on backwards. Now, of course, his dad told him to stop, stop screaming, and then that he was fine. And when he looked at it, that's when all anus face decided that maybe he really did do something bad and that he should be concerned. So he sat down on the only chair in the room and pondered for a bit. And then said to Stephen, do you really think it's broken? Now, Stephen had no idea what broken meant. For him, all he knew is that sometimes his pencil would would snap and not be be able to be used anymore until his dad sharpened it. So he just said, yes, I think it's broken, not really knowing what he's agreeing to. Then, of course, his dad says, and this is just like nothing but fecal vomiting. No, it's not. It can't be. I barely touched you. Yeah, okay. The famous minimalization of abuser. It can't be. I barely touched you. I only grabbed you and threw you across a room, but I barely touched you. So then he decides that, you know what? I have to take him to the hospital. And this is Stephen's first time in a car. This is Stephen's first time in a hospital. And he was, to to say that he was overstimulated would be an understatement. You know, he's trying to learn about everything. He's trying to take it all in. You know, he could smell the petroleum. He could smell the outdoors. He's seeing people. He's seeing faces. He's never seen this many faces before. Well, of course, he was almost like a dizzy with overstimulation and his brain trying to process all the new information that's going on around him. As they enter the doors of the hospital, his dad says, keep your mouth shut. Don't tell them anything. I'll do the talking. More famous lines from abusers. Now, when they get to the emergency room waiting room, they see another woman. This is Stephen's first time seeing another woman. So he thought her name was mom. Because to him, all women's names are mom. He only has ever seen one other woman, you know, once in a while. So she was asking what his name was, um, and Stephen did not answer. And so she just took that as him being shy, of course. And But the truth is, is that Stephen did not know his name. He'd only been called names like Little Bastard. So Albert 
the Fion face spoke up and said that his name was Stephen. And the little voice in his head said, Stephen, your name is Stephen. So they sit in the waiting room, and as they sit down, the dad whispers, say nothing, again, with a very knowing look on his face. And Stephen starts looking around at the others that were in the waiting room and realizes how long and dirty his hair is compared to others. He kind of like put his hand, kind of brushed his hand on his hair like, oh, man. And he realized that other kids were staring at him because he looked different. His clothes were remarkably dirty. He saw a photo of measles on the wall and really thought that they looked like the marks that were left on him from the belt that he got a lot. When they, when he meets with the doctor for the first time, they sit down in the exam room and the freaking doctor opens up with, so Stephen, what have you done? So the voice in his head tells him, they think you did this. And he wanted to shout that he hadn't done anything, but he was too scared to speak up. His father is right there in the room looking at him like, don't you dare, don't you dare say a word. So of course, Stephen just looks down His dad asks how old he is, or his dad, no, the doctor. Did you all hear that? There was like a pipe overhead that just made a really weird noise. I am so sorry about that. Anyway, moving along, the doctor asks, what, uh, how old are you? Again, he doesn't say a word. Now he doesn't say a word because he does not know the answer to these questions anyway. The doctor takes this to mean that he is shy. So his father says he's seven. So this is the first time that Stephen learns his age. So we know at the age of seven was his first broken uh, bone that he can remember. Then he proceeds to tell the doctor that Stephen broke his shoulder by climbing a tree. Stephen didn't know what a tree was, but now he's putting together that it's something that people can climb. And the doctor's response was, right, boys will be boys. Then he wagged a finger at Stephen, telling him to be more careful. Stephen flinched at the movement, the wagging, instinctively, and the doctor noticed but didn't say anything. They put him in a cast and they sent him home. Nothing else was ever done. Now, in today's world, the child would be spoken to alone by the doctor. Um, X-rays would be taken to, he finds out later that it was a spiral fracture. Those we know are predominantly caused by child abuse. Uh, There's just so many times in this poor child's life where other adults failed him. I would argue because of the time, because it just wasn't as well known as it is now it and, and frankly, it wasn't as frowned upon then as it is now child abuse. I mean, So here he is in a cast, and he's got, like, most of his shoulder and his arm casted. He could still wiggle his fingers, so he could still do his writings. But it was harder for him to navigate life with one arm. He still had to swap out, okay? The dad, um, his dad comes down the next day, doesn't tell him what he's doing, tells him to sit down in a chair, gets really, really close to him, and whips those scissors out. Now, of course, Stephen is terrified how he didn't piss himself with fear I have no idea but he grabs the the scissors starts grabbing Stephen's hair and gives him his very first haircut probably because he realized that he had been neglecting his hygiene for so long and that he desperately needed a haircut so after he leaves and of course he had with one arm 
he had to sweep up his own hair clippings because it would just be too difficult for Ana's face to do it himself, wouldn't it? So he learns how to sweep the floor at that point in time. And after the haircut, Stephen was feeling around on his head and he realizes that there is some sort of divot in it. Now the voice asks him, has he hit you in the head? And Stephen answers. He has no idea because he doesn't recall if he'd ever been hit in the head. But he did always wonder, like, what is that divot in his skull? After being allowed to see the outside world at the hospital and on the drive and whatnot, he realizes everything that he's missing, and he starts having dreams and fantasies about killing his father. And I don't blame him. I... I can only imagine how that must be to know that there is a whole other world out there and you're not allowed to be a part of it. So, of course, instead of bringing him back to the hospital to cut the cast off like the nurses instructed, his father waited until the cast smelled so horrible that no one could take it anymore and he uses those scissors to cut them off. Now, Stephen's arm was really weak. The skin had grown scaly and pale. He brought down a bucket, made him get into the bath, and that's that. His next memory after the cast came off was about being locked in the outhouse during the winter. It was colder than the cellar. Now, the cellar is cold. I believe basements are usually about 52, 55 degrees. It's usually the below ground uh, uh, temperature, okay? So in the winter, in this outhouse, it's even colder than that. He's wearing shorts. He's wearing a t-shirt. He doesn't even have his blanket that he usually has in his cellar. And that night, or the next day, when he's allowed out, he hears the door unlock, but, but it doesn't open, okay? And so he would kind of open it a little bit. And, and I do think that I failed to mention this. The um, Usually what would happen is when he would be released from the outhouse, his dad would be standing behind the door. There my husband is shutting off the valve again. Um, he would be released and he would, his dad would come up behind him and just start beating him in the head, slapping him around, that sort of thing. Well, this time was a little bit different. He hears, his dad doesn't open the door, so Stephen opens it, and he hears his dad shout, release the dog, and then opens the door. So it, it doesn't dawn on Stephen until later in life when he realizes what a dog is, that that's what his dad was calling him. But instead of little bastard, now he's being called a dog. He never was called by his real name by either one of his parents. So back in the cellar, he would distract himself with the hunger pains by drawing. Stephen loved to draw, and he would take extra papers away like from his sentences and writings and things like that. Um, he would sneak papers, and he would draw. And what he would draw is a lot of monsters, lots of monsters that looked like spiders with his father's face. So if you think about it, I mean, these are what he's been exposed to the most. So creatively, this makes sense. But he would hide them. There was a little crook, a little, little well, for lack of a better word, like a hole, a little, little nook and cranny in the um, cellar, or cylinder, sorry, 
I don't know why this description is so hard for me, but in the walls of his cell, in other words, there is this little teeny hole and he would roll the papers up and he would, would uh, hide them in there so that he, they were like his most prized possessions. And I'll just tell you right now, he was and still is a very gifted artist. Now, as he got a bit older, he decided to try to wiggle the door to the cellar. Now that he's been through it so many times and has kind of seen the workings of it, he is is getting old enough that he could actually push the door himself and he gets brave enough to do so. So he crawls up the stairs, he starts wiggling it and pushes it, and he's able to wiggle it open. And when he opens the door, he says, hello, really softly. There's no reply. What does he do? You guys, he goes straight for the pantry where he had seen and smelled all the wonderful food. And he just goes hog wild. And I do not blame him. He was eating anything and everything that he could open and get his hands on. He grabbed eggs and he learned that they broke really fast. He described them as yellow, as uh, he described them as a round yellow dot swimming in snot, and he didn't think that they tasted good. But he was fascinated by taking them and throwing them on the floor, and they would break open, cause and effect, right? He hasn't had anything in his cell to be able to experiment with cause and effect. So he does it with the fragility of eggs, and it is fascinating to him. Of course, he knows he's leaving a mess, but and, and that he's going to pay for this. But the fact of the matter is he doesn't care. He's getting his belly full. He's tasting things that he's never tasted before. For the first time ever, he tastes ham. He got a big block of cheese and he takes a big chunk of it. Now, he had had tiny slivers of cheese on cheese sandwiches before, but never to this to be able to get as much as he wants in one bite. He had biscuits. He was just going to town. Well, then suddenly he hears somebody coming. So he scurries and he goes back to the cellar. When he gets to the bottom of the cellar stairs, he hears a woman scream and a voice that must have been his mother shout, Albert, he's been in the pantry and broken all the eggs. Immediately, he hears footsteps and he hears his dad say, So the rats have got out of the cellar, have they? And down he comes the stairs and Stephen's crouching at the corner at this point in time. Now, trigger trigger alert, I'm sure you know what's coming, but his father on that day beat him so badly that Stephen actually went unconscious. And when he woke, his face was swollen. He could barely open his eyes, and he was in a tremendous amount of pain. The next day, there was a wooden wedge in the door to prevent it from opening. And in all that that had happened. Stephen felt the most bad about the fact that he had promised Peter, his best friend Spider, that he would bring back food for him. And in his hurry to get out and get back to the cellar, he forgot to bring some for Peter. And I just can't believe that this child can even learn empathy and know what empathy is when he has been shown none of it at all by these monsters. So eventually, though, he does figure out how to use one of his pencils for his schoolwork to get the wooden wedge that his dad placed under that door out 
and he would wiggle the knob and it would unlock. Now, he would go right to the pantry right away. Now, this time he didn't make a mess, but he would eat what he could and then he would go back into the uh, the cellar. Now, the second time that he was able to get out, he explored a little through the house and he realized all the windows were nailed shut. The doors were locked from the inside. Okay, so everyone was essentially like locked into this house. And even if he could get out of the cellar, he couldn't get out of the house. So he returned back to the cellar. Now, obviously... His father knew that he had gotten out because it's not like after Stephen closed those cellar doors, he couldn't put the wedge back in the door, right? So his dad knew that he had been out, even if he didn't make a mess, because that wedge would be, you know, out from underneath the door. Now, he came home from work after this second time that he got out. He came home from work and immediately went downstairs with the belt and beat the shit out of him. Um... Most of the time, it was this time, it was on, on like the back of his legs and on his back. And each time that he missed, because now Stephen is getting more brazen. You know, he knows that there's another world out there. He's getting a little bit older. He is getting tired of this bullshit, rightfully so. And so he is trying to... He's not sitting there just taking his beatings anymore. He's making it more difficult for his dad. And his dad, of course, gets more angry. So Fionn Face grabs him by the right wrist as he's trying to whip him with this belt for getting out um, a second time. And suddenly, there's a large cracking sound. He went down, Stephen went down screaming grabbing just above his right wrist, so about like right there for my video listeners. Um, And he immediately starts yelling, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I think it's broken like last time. And his dad shouts, not again. Not again, leave your hands off him, you fucking idiot. So here Stephen is apologizing to his dad because his dad broke his wrist. That is the fucked up cycle of abuse. So to the hospital they go. Now it was dark this time. It was nighttime. So he didn't get to see as much of the world as he did the first time. But Anus Face takes him to a different hospital. Of course, because it's been too soon from the last broken bone to take him to the same hospital. Same rigmarole. Don't say a word. And at this time, he actually has the audacity to say, Remember how lucky you are to have me to take care of you. I'm sorry, but I'm pretty sure that Satan himself would do a better job taking care of this child than this man. So, this time, the nurse is calling him John. Because, of course, he was given a fake name for the child, or the hospital was given a fake name. And it's the same thing. He gets wrapped up. He gets sent back with his dad. And he gets returned to thrown back down to the um, cellar. When they got home, he did not get dinner. And his dad told him, you don't deserve anything, you thieving bastard. I don't know. Maybe he probably wouldn't try to get out and steal food if you fucking fed him. It's just a thought. Then, on his way out of the, the cellar, Fion Face finds the hiding spaces where his drawings were. 
all the drawings of him as a monster. Now keep in mind, Stephen is a gifted artist. So when he draws someone's face, you know damn well whose face he be drawing. Okay, so there's no mistaking to his dad that Stephen has drawn him as a monster. He sits down at the little table and is actually impressed. He tells them, it tells him how good they are and how pleased he is. Now, the little voice in Stephen's head is saying, oh my God, maybe he'll let you live upstairs now. Maybe he's actually proud of you. Maybe he'll let you be a part of the family. And he says to him, you like to draw then? And actually smiled at Stephen. And Stephen found himself actually smiling back for the first time ever, feeling happy and hopeful for the first time ever. He says, yes, he does like to draw. After giving them another once over, his father stood up from the chair that he'd been sitting in, put all the drawings in a nice neat pile, and proceeded to rip them to shreds. And then made Stephen clean the shreds up of his years of artwork with his one hand. Stephen was devastated. In that moment, he wanted his father to die a a very painful death. Those drawings were all that he had in his life. And as time went on, once again, his dad removed the cast himself instead of taking him to the doctor. And once again, Stephen recalls that the doctors had said it was a spiral fracture, which, like I said, is a huge indication of child abuse because it means actual twisting. The bones are spiraled in a twisting motion. Now, um, now Stephen can hear kids upstairs a lot more all of a sudden, even though it's usually typically quiet. Now, I think this is just attributed to the fact that like the kids are getting older, so now they are running around more, and they're making more noise. And we don't, remember, we don't have a lot of time frames here because... Sorry, hit my microphone again. Uh, Because Stephen doesn't really know about time. He doesn't know how to tell time. He doesn't know what time is called. So his dad, that he did recall this one particular moment where his dad came downstairs stumbling and swaying. And he didn't bring him anything to work on for studies. He didn't bring him food. He wasn't wearing his apron. He just told him to sit down. Um, He recalled that his dad was wearing a new, like, kind of nicer outfit and a watch, which, of course, at that time, Stephen didn't know what a watch was. He just saw something shiny on his wrist. But upstairs, he could hear dishes clattering and being put away. And he had no idea why his dad was even coming down. I mean, he usually had, no, he always had reasons. But then he hears his mom come down the stairs. She's got a plate of food, more food than normal. His dad says, what do you say? He says, thank you. She just turned and left saying nothing. Remember what I said. She never, ever, ever speaks one word to her son. And he goes, he, um, he, the voice, sorry, lost my train of thought for a second there. The voice inside his head said to him, maybe she doesn't know how to speak. But then he remembers, no, because remember, she ratted me out when I was in the pantry. She said, Albert, he's been in the pantry and broken all the eggs. So he knows that she can speak. His dad gets very, very close to him. He can smell. They had a weird, sour smell on his breath. 
that the whole like thought of it no no now he was drunk Stephen didn't know what drunk was he didn't know what alcohol was but that's what was going on he placed a hand on top of Stephen's head and of course Stephen winced and cowered away but for the first time ever he kind of like shuffled his hand like through his head and patted him on the head he walks away towards the door turns around and says Merry Christmas you little bastard and then laughed as he shut the cellar door stellar the cellar door so that's his only memory of a Christmas he got just a little bit more food than normal on his plate and that that was it Time kept passing, and one day, when Stephen was slapping out his bucket, he saw two boys. One was close to his age, and another was much smaller. He was guessing that the boy closer to his age must have been like six, and the other one, he's really not sure. But then there was another baby, another child, that was a baby in a stroller. He didn't know what a baby was, of course, or what a stroller was. But his mom was there. And when the baby cried, he, his mom picked it up and soothed it. And he could see that his mom was surprised to see him in the backyard and then looked at his father as if none of them were really supposed to be there. And they weren't because there must have been a miscommunication between Dingleberry 1 and Dingleberry 2 because she, he was taking um, Stephen out to slop out and she was not supposed to have the kids in the backyard. Well... His dad did bark at him uh, to get in the cellar, keep his eyes forward. He could hear mom and dad fighting over what had just happened, and he heard his mom say something about the baby needing fresh air and that the other kids were just playing. A while later, he hears small taps on the cellar door. It was a child. He goes to the cellar door and says, you know, hello, and he hears a little voice say, hello, and they asked what their names were, all right? This little boy says that his name is Andrew. And he's like, well, I'm Stephen. Then he's asking ages, and he could only remember that he was seven. You know, the little boy, Andrew, is asking, like, well, how old are you? And he's like, I don't know. He knows that he was seven, but that was ages ago when he broke his shoulder. Andrew said, that's not possible. You can't be seven because I'm six. And I have a little sister named Jane who's four. And then Billy, the baby. So then Andrew asks, why does daddy keep you down here? Why don't you live upstairs with us? Stephen says, I don't know. I don't know why they keep me down here. Andrew says, wow, you must have been really, really naughty to be kept down there. Stephen agrees, even though he really doesn't know what he's agreeing to. What had he done that was so naughty? And he's kind of pissed off because he's like, who are you to say I was naughty? Why don't you live down here? What is, why is all this happening? Now, Andrew was gone suddenly because he heard someone coming. He wanted to ask him a lot of questions. But the next time that he slapped out, he saw Andrew again. And he came outside. Dad yelled, Andrew, get back inside. Andrew says, but I came for my football. And he grabs it and then ran inside. So... For Stephen, he wanted to know why the hell Andrew didn't get beat like he did. He talked back to Dad. He disobeyed Dad. Why was he not being beaten 
the way that Stephen got beaten for no reason. A little while later, that day, Andrew came back to the cellar door. This time he had Jane with him, and they discussed playing outside and what it was like. They discussed playing with toys. Stephen had never even seen a toy. He never played outside. He had no idea. He did remember once he had a gray elephant and like a top spinner, but he got to play with it for a day before his dad took it away and told him that he didn't deserve any toys. So he explained to Andrew that now he plays with spiders. Now, as soon as Jane heard the word spiders, she starts squealing and ran away. These interactions really weren't healthy for Stephen. They made him very jealous of his siblings, especially seeing them when he slopped out because he could see the way that his father treated them all so differently. And quite frankly, this made him hate them all. Because why weren't those children telling somebody, telling anybody else what was going on, that they had a brother that lived in the cellar and was never allowed out? Now, Andrew does come back to the door again, and they talked about um, the difference between a boy and a girl. They talked about how girls are she's and how he learned about all this stuff in books. He learned what books were. So... All of these things are kind of embarrassing to Stephen because Andrew is much younger than him, right? But he knows so much more about everyday life, and it it made Stephen feel bad about himself, rightfully so. Sorry, needed to take a drink. Um, Andrew or Andrew Stephen decided that he was gonna. He was more and more determined to escape after this. So he escaped a lot. He always went to the pantry, and eventually his dad did put a padlock on the pantry door so that when he escaped, he couldn't get food anymore. But he never put a padlock on the cellar door. He only kept the wedge that he knew damn well Stephen could pop out. So then the voice in Stephen's head is asking why. He knows that you can get out. Why is he allowing you to? Well, the reason is pretty obvious. He wants Stephen. Stephen can't really go anywhere. The doors are locked from the inside. He wants Stephen to see what he can't have. It's another form of abuse for him. It's another form of power and control. And it gives him another excuse to beat the shit out of him every time that he knows he's done it. The next time that Stephen recalls seeing his mother, she was bringing him a plate of food. And he decided to finally talk to her and ask her all the questions that he could not ask his father. He just starts firing them off at her. Why am I kept down here? Why do the other kids get to live up there? Why, when can I move upstairs? He, he beats me. You know he beats me. Does he beat the other kids like this? He gets desperate and his voice starts to raise and he gets angry the more and more that he is speaking to her and she just stands there staring at him. He could see in her eyes that she was scared and shocked and although he recalled that she did have a kind face, she just stared with her brown eyes. She was very small. He recalls that at this point in time when he was finally brave enough to ask her these questions, 
they were almost the same size. He figured that his dad probably hit her too and that she was so tiny he could probably snap her in half and that's why she didn't do anything. So he says, you know he hits me. You know he hits me all the time. I I know you can hear me screaming down here. And all she does, he says, why don't you help me? She looked at the ground, turned away, and left. So he follows her to the stairs and says, when are you going to let me out? I want to get out of here. He's screaming at this point in time. She climbs the stairs one by one and shuts the door. He did think that he saw her wipe something away from underneath her eye when she turned, but he can't really be sure. And that was the last time that Stephen Smith ever saw his mother. He has no idea how old he was. He has no idea how old his mother was, but she never came down again. He cried so hard that night that he fell asleep, that day after that, that he fell asleep. And when he woke, he realized that the day was gone and he had still not done all of his spellings. Soon his father came home and his work was not done. Now, he was waiting for a beating for speaking to his mother, but it never came. His mom must not have told anyone that he had spoken to her like that. And remarkably, he was fed dinner that night at least. So he does feel like the one thing that he, his mom ever did for him was save him that day from a vicious beating. He thought maybe because she didn't say anything to him about the way that he was yelling at her and asking her questions, he kind of got hopeful. He was like, she protected me. Uh, maybe she's going to make, maybe she's going to come around and make some changes and let me out. But the longer that time went on, and she ne- didn't come back down, the more he knew that it, the, the more hope he lost, that it was useless, she wasn't going to make any changes for him and allow him out. So let's talk a little bit about Peter, his spider best friend. After he lost hope that his mom was ever going to come down again, he was playing with Peter on his arm when he heard his father start to come down the stairs. So he rushes to put Peter back in his web, but Peter didn't stay there, and his father ends up seeing the spider scurry across the floor, and he went after Peter with his his boots on, stomping and stomping, and Stephen was helpless to just watch as his father stomped on the ground over and over, and then suddenly scraped his foot across the floor, making a final statement and talking about bloody spiders. Stephen was beyond devastated. Beyond. He was screaming and crying like a lunatic. He lashed out at his father and in return got punched over and over. But Stephen didn't care because his best friend was dead. After his father left, some time had passed. And all of a sudden, he sees Peter crawling into his web after all. This was the first time that Stephen remembers feeling real happiness and joy. His best friend was alive. He had taken a beating for mourning him, but he was alive. Now, some days later, and again, it's hard to distinguish time, remember, but Stephen remembers walking by Peter's web and saying hi to him and realizing that Peter had passed away. He blamed his father. Now, no, his father had not squished him, but 
To Stephen, his father had scared him to the point of shortening his life, and his father was responsible for all the pain in his life. So, realistically, if you think about it, Peter the spider had lived for years. He was a good spider. He'd lived a good long life with Stephen, and it probably was just his time. But who's to say? So the next day, he had to slap out the bucket, which means he knew that he was going to get locked in the outhouse again. He was locked in it so frequently that it became as kind of a second bedroom to him. And when the door was unlocked the next day, and his dad said, release the dogs, it wasn't, the door wasn't opened. It was just unlocked. So finally, Stephen gets courage himself to push the door open. The light was really bright. He had to kind of shade his eyes. And he was starting to step across the grass when he heard his dad yell again, as usual, release the dog. Now, he, uh, Stephen was preparing for the usual slap in the back of the head. But this time, it wasn't his dad's hand. This time, this is trigger alert because this one's really bad. This time, he was pinned down to the ground while his father endlessly beat him in the back with what he will find out later was a garden spade. He had been beaten so badly on the back by the edge of the spade that Stephen was hospitalized for days. His father stayed in the room during the visiting hours, and he gave him warning looks each time about not saying anything. A Dr. Johnson was in charge of Stephen's care while he was in a hospital for the injuries to his back. He learned that the story from his father was that Peter and his siblings had gotten out a tent. And Peter, not Peter, Peter's a spider, sorry. Stephen and his siblings had gotten out a tent and uh, Stephen had slipped and fell against one of the tent pegs. Now this split his back open in several places, and his father said that he was in the kitchen at the time and came out running when he heard commotion from the other kids. So his father's claiming he didn't see it, but this is what happened. And then he said, kids will be kids. Dr. Johnson, this is, this is what Stephen recalls after waking up. He has no idea how much time has passed. But his back is stitched up in in because he was like sliced in half on his back by this spade. And so he is stitched up and wakes up. And this doctor tells him, you young man need to be more careful on your adventures and set a good example for your younger siblings. I mean, just fuck right off, Dr. Johnson. You know, fuck right off. Then he watches the doctor shake his dad's hand, and says, it was a pleasure to meet you. Oh, really? When I meet Satan, I don't think that's what I'm going to be saying at all. Once again, he addressed Stephen and told him to be careful because they could stitch him up this time, but they might, he might not be so lucky next time. So the nurses did kick his father out after visiting hours, and he looked at Stephen and said, you behave yourself. Now, the nurse smiled like he was just being a dad, but Stephen knew what that meant. In, in, as a result, Stephen never spoke to anyone. None of the nurses or the other children on the ward 
and this didn't go unnoticed. They tried to get him out of bed and to do things, but he didn't know how to play with toys or with other children. His hair was long, and two nurses took care of it, cooing over him, over how long and nice it was. You know, they gave him baths and and cleaned him up and whatnot. And he enjoyed his time in the hospital, of course, because just like inmates enjoy their time in the hospital, right? He was fed good food, food that he has never tried before. He got ice cream for the first time. His bed was warm and soft, and he could count on people being nice. They were, everyone was nice to him. But of course, all good things come to an end, and he had to go home where nothing changed. He was back in the cellar. But this time, his dad started bringing him books and magazines to go, and he, and he had coursework that he had to make up, of course, from his time in the uh, hospital. But he started getting pages ripped out of a book and given to him. Now, they might not be in order, but Stephen didn't care. He loved to read, and he loved to learn new information. At one point in time, his dad brought down an entire manual on how to build a car engine. Stephen memorized it. So he had learned about puberty for the, through those books. They were just random pages ripped out, but he got all of the info that he needed and that he possibly could. Then one day, his dad comes downstairs and tells him that they are going to an appointment. It turns out that, that his hospital stay and his obvious issues with interacting with others did not go unnoticed, and his father was forced to take him to a psychologist. Of course, he was told to keep quiet, and it had been a long time since the beating with the spade, so now it was only a scar, just to help you help us all a little bit with the timeline. The first meeting with the psychologist was with a doctor, but his father was in the room. And the first question that this doctor asks, this psychologist asks, is, Tell me, Stephen, why do you keep getting into trouble? Stephen's probably like, the fuck, what? What do you mean, getting into trouble? I'm locked in a motherfucking cellar all day. What could I possibly be doing to get into trouble? Then he says... To his entire shock. Why does your father beat you? Now, all of a sudden, Stephen is is looking to his father like, I didn't tell them anything. I why, why is he saying this? So his father says, I have to hit him to try and control him. There is something wrong with it. There is something wrong with him, doctor. He's not all there. And he points to his head. The doctor says, right. Well, I would like Stephen to go in to meet my colleague, Dr. Robinson, to be assessed. So this meeting did not take place with his father in the room, even though, oh, Fionn Face tried so hard to get himself into that assessment room. But the psychologist stuck to their, st- st- stood their ground and did not allow him into that room. During the assessment... Dr. Robinson told him to kind of drink some water to relax and that they had plenty of time, okay? So when they start the assessment, he confirms that his name is Stephen, and then the doctor says, and you're 12 years old? Stephen had no idea. He's like, you got it right in front of you. You fucking tell me, man, because I've got no idea how old I am. I don't even know what time is. I've never celebrated a birthday. 
It's not exactly what he says, but he just agrees because, you know, you just agree with adults. And he's like, sure, whatever, I'm fucking 12. So the assessment ends up actually being an intelligence test. And Stephen passes with flying colors. Remember those books and magazines that I was telling you he was reading all the time and the manual that he memorized for car engines? Well, the doctor asked Stephen to write about anything that he wanted. And so he literally wrote all about how to build a car engine. So it turns out Stephen Smith is intellectually gifted, which means his father's explanation of saying that there was something wrong with him cognitively was highly inaccurate, and the doctor is starting to piece things together. The assessment itself was super fun for Stephen, and it was super easy. So then the doctor says, tell me, Stephen, your father, does he hit you? This makes Stephen stop the puzzle that he was doing, and he says, you can tell me anything. Anything you tell me is confidential, and then he explains what confidential means. So Stephen hesitates and then says, yes, my father does beat me. Then he just loses it, and it all floods out. He tells him absolutely everything, you guys. Now, the doctor could not hide his obvious horror as he's putting together the pieces of the puzzle, and he's writing everything down. And I imagine there is, I can't, that would be intense uh, to be that doctor hearing all that. And he's asking him questions to piece things together, like, how are you so intelligent? How can you read? How can you write? How can you memorize a car engine manual if you're kept literally in a cellar all day? So he explains to him, I love to learn. He brings me things down. Sometimes they're not all in order, but that's okay. I'll just read whatever I can. He tells he was about to tell him about his pinky almost being cut off with scissors. When the doctor interrupts, don't do that. Always let the child finish talking. Anyway, the doctor interrupts and says, so why do you steal food? Your dad says that you steal food. Do you do this? Is that really high on your list of priorities right now, Doc? You want to know why the fuck this kid steals food? He just told you that he's severely physically and emotionally abused and locked in a cellar. And you, PhD, can't figure out why he steals food. He's fucking hungry. That's why he steals food. This question makes Stephen feel so ashamed of himself and reverting back to himself. But he confesses and said, yes, I do because I always feel hungry. A doy. Yeah, no kidding. He doesn't bring me food sometimes as punishment. And when he does, it's not enough. So then the doctor asks, what about your mom? And he told him, told the truth about her. They talked about her. He says, <laughs> this, I love this. He asked the question, do you miss her? How the fuck can you miss somebody that you never had? I mean, truly. So he's honest and says, no, bro, I, didn't, I don't miss her. Then he asks about the siblings. Do you like them? No, again, I don't know them. They get to live upstairs. I have to live in a cold, damp, dark basement. Why the fuck would I like them? No. So he says, no. I don't like them because no one tells others about what's happening to me, happening to me, and that's why I don't like them. Rightfully so. So he asks, what do you do when you aren't doing your spellings, your homework, your maths, that sort of things? He says, I draw, but then I hide them. 
He's like, oh, you like to draw? What do you like to draw? He tells the doctor, monsters. I really like monsters. He says, will you draw some for me? He's like, absolutely. Give me some paper. Let's do this thing. So he draws with impeccable skill, his father as monsters again. And indeed, the doctor was extremely impressed with his skills. And why wouldn't he be? He's, he's a very good artist. So he's kind of cooing and awing over the um, drawings. And this made Stephen feel proud of himself. And then the doctor releases him to his father. Just like that. Okay, then. Thanks for your tragic life story. Have a good day now and go smoke a stogie in my office. So, of course, the way home, his, uh, Fionn face is questioning, firing question after question at Stephen. What did you say? What did they ask you? And Stephen's like, nothing. I didn't tell him anything. He just had me draw pictures. Cool. So days go by and Stephen loses all hope that telling the doctor was even the right decision. Now, he will at least say he didn't get a beating for telling his dad anything, so or telling on his dad, so there's that. But he absolutely lost hope that this doctor, this adult, was going to do anything about um, what he had told him. And eventually, they go back and see the shrink again. That's what uh, he calls him. The psychologist in the book is a shrink. I love that. Um, and this time... There's a woman that's sitting in the back seat of the car. (laughs) The description in the book, I just love this. Stephen is like, she was literally the fattest woman I have ever seen in my life. Which, granted, he hadn't seen many people. So she must have just just been this plump woman. But he gets in the car and his dad says, this is Mary. She's the housekeeper. Stephen doesn't know what a fucking housekeeper is. He doesn't know what this woman is doing going to his doctor's appointment with him, but whatever. She rides in the back seat. Mary never says a thing. And they when they go and meet with the doctor again, he's given more puzzles, more assessments, and he's asked to draw more. The doctor's boss wanted to speak to all of them. So they sit down, they go to the to the head honcho's office there, and he tells Stephen's father, uh, he tells Fionn Face that he needs to stop hitting his child. Yep. Stephen is terrified. What the fuck are you doing? And now he's going to know I said something. The doctor betrayed him. That is initially what Stephen is thinking. That, of course, Stephen's dad is like, the fuck you say? And so the doctor repeats himself and says, you are going to stop hitting your child. So then his father says, why? What's he been saying? What lies has he been telling you? The doctor says, nothing. He hasn't said anything. But what is obvious to me is that this child is frightened of you because you beat him and that needs to stop now. So it turns out the doctor did not betray Stephen. But the way this all shook out, not best practice, bro. Not best practice. So his dad, as you can imagine, 
loses his total shit and starts screaming like a lunatic that he will not be told how to raise his child. I brought him here because there's something wrong with him and you're supposed to fix him, not tell me how to raise my son. He grabs Stephen roughly by the arm, drags him out the door, still screaming down the hallway. When I listen to this part of the book, there are so many CPS cases that come to mind of abusers reacting like this when they are told to stop. They do not like to be told by people of authority what they can and cannot do. So he puts a finger right to Stephen's face when they're in the hallway and tells him not to say a word. Well, a nurse witnessed this whole interaction comes around the corner. That infuriated him even more. He grabs Stephen, throws him in the car. Mary climbs into the back seat as fast as her chubby ass could get her in there, and they speed away. At home, he's thrown back in the cellar with no mention of the doctor again, and Stephen's thinking, great, like nothing's going to change. All of this was for nothing. Days go by, and he's lost all hope when all of a sudden Stephen starts to hear a commotion one morning from upstairs. His father is yelling that someone had no right, that they need to get out of his house. He's got no idea what's going on. Suddenly, the cellar door opens, and there's a woman standing there with a man in a uniform. He kind of recognized the uniform from some of his sentences that he had to write, but that man was holding his father back and telling him that he needed to calm down or he'd be arrested. The woman says to Stephen, Come on, Stephen, come out of the cellar. You're safe now. Stephen's hesitant, but he starts making his way up the stairs to the woman's arms. And that, friends, is where we're going to end episode one. I know I just did you so damn dirty, so dirty. But if you're a Patreon, hop on over to your next episode because Patreons get both episodes of two-parters right away. So fear not if you're a Patreon. If you're not a Patreon, feel free to join Crime Curious. Go to patreon.com slash crimecuriouspodcast, and it's easy to sign up there. And now you'll have access to video uh, episodes as well. Before we go, though, you know I'm going to give you a brain bath and it's a doozy. This one was written in by a listener, and I am going to keep their name confidential. And I'm just going to read it word for word here. So there's some some love. They love Crime Curious. That is wonderful. And here is their very true and little devious story. Says Charnel. When you said one day on an episode that you do not fart in front of your hubby, I was like, I am with you. You are, I am you and you are me because I also keep my flatulence to myself. So imagine my horror when one night I had awoken to pee and when I got back into bed, a little bomb drops out of my ass. No big deal. Hubby's sound asleep next to me. It was my little secret. That is until it hit me. I swear the room turned a little green like on cartoons, even though it was dark. I just knew it would have had a green hue if the light was on. What had I ate? Was I dying and did not know it? Is this how I found out that I have an uncurable disease that doctors thought only existed in the 1500s? Because this certainly 
was what the 1500s must have smelt like. As I pondered if this was the end or not, our little dog stirred next to me, obviously as offended as I was at the smell. This poor girl with her heightened sense of smell, if this was enough to make me question if I was even still living or not, I can't imagine what it was like for her. I watch in dark, shadowy horror as she creeps close to my husband. No, girl, what are you doing? Do not betray me like this. Lay down and forget this ever happened like I did. Do not wake his ass up now. Suddenly, husband stirs in his sleep, reaches his hand out, and pats the dog gently. He then makes a moaning sound that could have just been him having a rousing, steamy dream about us on a beach rolling in the sand and is just moaning in dreamful pleasure. Keep calm, I say. Steady your breathing. Play dead. Fuck, you might not be playing. You might actually be dead based on what just came out of your body and is lingering for a concerning amount of time in the room. He rolls over, makes a more disgusted sound. Okay, Maybe he's still asleep, and the disgusted sound is that his brain manifested the smell into a dead whale washing up on the beach, ruining our illegal public display of sexual affection. I am in the clear. I'm playing dead, and maybe being dead soon must have worked. (laughs) I fall back asleep, making note to not let another one slip until I either get checked out by a doctor or do a private beta test in the bathroom tomorrow. (laughs) I'm dying. The next day, I'm sitting with my darling husband when our sweet dog jumps on his lap, triggering a memory for him. He suddenly says, oh my God, last night she came up to me and licked me until I woke up and she had just farted right by my head. It was like she woke me up just to make me smell it. It was so disgusting. I have never smelled a dog fart like that before. (laughs) I sat in stunned, sweaty silence as he talked. I simply looked at him and said, Huh, really glad I slept through that. Good thing she is so cute. (laughs) On the inside, I was screaming, No! She was waking you up probably to save you or to beg you to save her from the death that was coming for you both. (laughs) Then it hit me. She woke him up to save him. Now... Now I know where her ali- or now I know where her allegiance lays, or worse yet, she knew it had come from my body and was waking him up to say, "Dude, your wife is disgusting. If I have to suffer with this, so do you." Either way, I felt betrayed, but consider- considering I just allowed him to believe that it was her, I guess we're even. I know she sat there on his lap listening to him and staring me down, unable to tell him the truth. I bet inside her head she was screaming, How dare you, Mom? You should be ashamed of yourself. I am, sweet girl. Don't worry. It's our little secret. And now one that we share with all the listeners of Crime Curious. (laughs) That is perfect. Thank you. I hope that you got checked out and that everything is fine. And I hope that all of you guys keep listening, keep it curious, and also send case suggestions to crimecurious at yahoo.com. Put case suggestion in the email so I can keep it organized and feel free to follow me on social media. And until next time, you guys are just going to have to hang tight until uh, the next episode here. 
and uh, I'll talk at you later. Bye-bye.